Please turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, continuing our study through the book of Joshua. This morning we will be reading all 27 verses of chapter 9. Please give your attention to God's word. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, along, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the, their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. 
They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. For those of us who like to find spiritual and philosophical messages when we watch a good movie, there's an interesting scene in the movie Forrest Gump. At this point in the story, Forrest has sunk all of his life savings into a shrimp boat in order to make a living by fishing for shrimp. And one day, his good friend who served with him in Vietnam in the military, a tough-as-nails army captain named Captain Dan, shows up on the dock and offers to help Forrest. Captain Dan, at that point, is in a wheelchair having lost both his legs in combat. Captain Dan is cynical, he's bitter, and undoubtedly a bit mentally unstable. After many days of failing and finding shrimp, Captain Dan mocks Forrest for trusting in God to provide. And then the very next scene, is a mighty hurricane at sea that hits the boat. And as the boat is tossed around to and fro on the water, as the lightning flashes and the thunder hits and the waves overwhelm the boat, Forrest is cowering on the deck in fear, but Captain Dan climbs up the central mast of the boat all the way to the top and straps himself to the top. And up on top of the mast, Captain Dan laughs like a maniac, shaking his fist at the sky and shouting blasphemies and taunts at God, saying, it's time for a showdown. You and me, I'm right here. Come and get me. Every time I see that scene, it gives me great pause. What a disturbing idea that such a puny, weak creature would have the audacity to shake his fist at the creator of the universe, the one who is displaying his very power in that very moment. That he would willfully declare himself to be God's enemy. Yet, every day, all around us, millions and millions of people are essentially doing the same thing. Now, most of them, matter of fact, very few of them would do it as blatantly as Captain Dan. Hopefully nobody in this room is currently shaking your fist at God and taunting him and blaspheming him. Only a few are that blatant. But most of the world rejects the one true God. The one true God has revealed himself in his creation who has revealed himself more clearly in his word and has revealed himself most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ. Most people in the world reject God 
and they worship gods of their own imaginations, false gods. Some say they believe in the God of the scriptures, but then they live their lives as though he doesn't exist. And then there are some who just say they don't care whether he exists or not. All of these people are making themselves enemies of God. No matter how blatant their rejection and rebellion may appear, all of these people are essentially shaking their fist at God. John 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. This spiritual reality is what is behind the struggles that we see in the accounts of the history of Israel as it invades the promised land. This battle, eternal battle between dark and light. We've seen as we studied through the first eight chapters of the book of Joshua that God has had two purposes in bringing his people to the Jordan and into the promised land. His first purpose was to fulfill his promise, a promise that he had made 400 years earlier to Abraham, their father, that he would provide for them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they could dwell with God in their midst, watching over them, protecting them, caring for them, providing for them. That was God's first purpose. But his second purpose is also clear. It was to bring judgment upon the wicked pagan nations of Canaan. He had said 400 years earlier that they were worthy of his judgment, but he would delay that judgment. And that judgment has been delayed for 400 years. Meanwhile, their sins, their idolatries, their wickedness, their darkness has been piling up against them. And God has now sent judgment in the form of his people to destroy the Canaanites. I don't know about you, but one of the things that has surprised me about my studies through Joshua has been how aware the Canaanites were of what God had done for his people already and about God's instructions to his people regarding particularly their judgment. Remember what Rahab said, the Canaanite Rahab in Jericho when she met with the Israelite spies. Remember what she said in chapter 2 beginning in verse 9. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. She had heard. And she says, we have heard. The people in Jericho, the Canaanites, had heard of what God had done for his people. How he had judged Egypt and delivered his people, and carried them through the wilderness, and defeated their enemies. Rahab and the Jer people of Jericho knew, the Canaanites knew. Over even in the chapter we just read this morning, in chapter 9, the Gibeonites, whom we'll meet in a minute, the Gibeonites knew all this as well, and more. It says in, in verse 9, the second half of verse 9, For we have heard a report of him, God, 
and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan. And then later, they say over in verse 24, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. They knew what was coming. They were not caught blindsided. They had heard of God's miraculous provision and protection for Israel and of his judgment against Israel's enemies. And here they were, Israel's enemies, about to come under the sword of his justice. And what are they going to do? They're faced with the ultimate choice that any sinner faces in this life. With the reality of our sin and the reality of our righteous judge, what are we going to do? Are we going to gather our best men? Are we going to gather our best resources? Are we going to get to put together our best strategies and go to war with this God and his people? Or are we going to drop our weapons, fall to our knees, confess our sins, and put our hope in the mercy of this just judge? Every sinner, then and now, faces that same choice. Well, this account that we have in chapter 9 begins with an introduction to the mass, massive majority of the Canaanites who chose the former, those who chose to fight God and his people. Look at verses 1 and 2. Lists there the kings and kind of the general categories of the nations that were in Canaan. The kings of the Canaanite nations, they hear about the miraculous destruction of Jericho, which had just occurred, where God brought down the walls and his people destroyed the city. And they had heard about the defeat of Ai and how God had destroyed that city as well. And it says in verses 1 and 2, having heard about these destructions, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Whatever their differences were, and I'm sure they were many, they form a Canaanite coalition to go to war with God and his people. In this situation, as well as I look around the world today, it's always amazing how opposition to the one true God can produce unity among selfish sinners in spite of their envy, in spite of their selfishness, in spite of their radical differences. They had seen the power of God displayed. They had seen the evidences of his grace towards his people Israel. But in their hardened hearts, their response was to take up arms and fight in order to preserve their earthly kingdoms and their earthly treasures instead of seeking peace with God. As you survey the totality of God's word, God's word has for us three basic messages for the nations, both then and today. The first message is this. God is sovereign over all nations. He is absolutely sovereign over all nations, whether the nations and their leaders recognize it or not. Second message, God has a covenant of grace with his people. 
And God's sovereign plan for world history centers around that plan of redemption for his people. He has intended to love those people whom he has chosen for himself. He has saved them by grace. And everything that he's doing in the world centers around what he's doing for his people. That was true in the Old Covenant, and it's still true in the New Covenant. Testimony to that in the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 to 10. Listen to what God says about his people Israel. He says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Let me read that again. He fixed the borders of the peoples or of the nations according to the number of the sons of God. What that's saying is, is that everything God did in the world in that day was focused upon, centered around what he was doing for his people. It goes on to say, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is allotted heritage. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. That was true in the Old Testament church called Israel. It is still just as true for the New Testament church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And God the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Some translations say, for the sake of the church. It's saying the exact same thing that Deuteronomy 32 said. God has his covenant people. And everything that goes on in the world happens according to his sovereign plan, and it all has the purpose of furthering his plan for his people and their mission to take the message of the gospel to the world. If that doesn't give you comfort when you read the morning newspaper or listen to the morning cable newscast or read the internet, if that doesn't give you comfort, then you don't get what it's saying. The world seems so out of control. The sinfulness of man, the wickedness and darkness of man seems to reign. But Christ is on the throne. He has made a promise. He has formed a covenant with his people. And everything that happens, whatever has happened in North Korea or in China or Russia or the United States or South America, whatever happens, Christ is in sovereign control of those things and he orchestrates and directs all things to complete his purposes and the mission of his church. He loves the church, and everything he does is all about that. Brings me to the point number three. First point, God is sovereign over all nations, whether they acknowledge it or not. Second point, God has a covenant with his people, and his plan for all world history centers around his plan to redeem and sanctify and glorify his people. Third point, this is the logical conclusion based on point one and point two, it is extremely foolish to oppose God and to fight against him and his people. Listen to the words of Psalm 2. This is for every nation, every sinner of every age. Listen to what God says about his kingdom and his messianic king in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the conclusion. That's the message that this passage, that scripture in general, is communicating to us. God is sovereign. He's saving his people. Don't get in his way, lest you be destroyed. But we're going to see more of that when we get to chapter 10 and chapter 11. We will see how these nations who oppose God are driven out of existence. But first, in chapter 9, in the passage we read earlier, we learn about a nation that took a different strategy, one who sought peace with God and his people. The Gibeonites, they were on the list, on the list of nations to come under God's judgment. They were one of the next ones on the list at this point in the invasion of Canaan. They were probably only about 20 miles away from where Israel was now encamped. And when they heard, the text says, when they heard about what happened in Jericho, and when they heard about what happened in Ai, they did not choose to join themselves to the coalition of Canaanite nations that had set themselves up in opposition to God and his people. What they did instead was they came up with a tricky plan to fool the people of God into sparing them. Their leaders appoint a delegation to represent them. And they meet with Joshua and the leaders of Israel, and they ask for a peace treaty, a covenant, a covenant reflecting the covenant of God with his people. They want a covenant like that with Israel and with Israel's God that would spare them. And they plan an elaborate ruse to fool the Israelites into thinking that they have come from a distant land. Now, why? What's the significance of that? Why did the first thing they say to them, hey, we're from a long ways away, and all of this, this uh, effort they went into to fool, what was it about? Well, it's because God had sent his people to judge the Canaanites, these nations that are listed, that made up the Canaanite nations. But they were not sent to judge those outside of Canaan in the same way. And so... There could be no treaty among the Canaan, with, between Israel and the, and the nations of Canaan. They had to be utterly destroyed. But God says in Deuteronomy chapter 20 that if, they, if somebody from an outside nation, somebody outside of Canaan, somebody from far away were to come and seek an alliance, come to see, have a, asking for a, a peace treaty, that they were allowed to do that. That's made clear in the law of Moses. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow the Gibeons must have heard of this as well. And so based on that small hope, what they do is they send their delegation to Joshua. They put dirty, worn-out clothes on them. They put them on tired donkeys with worn-out sacks with dry, crumbly bread and worn-out wineskins. 
All this to make it look like they'd been on a very, very long journey. One other thing that I had not noticed before, but if you notice in verses 9 and 10, they say that they had heard of God's deliverance, just like Rahab, just like we knew of the people of Canaan. They had heard about God's deliverance of his people through the ten plagues, through the crossing of the Red Sea, the destroying of Pharaoh's army. They'd heard about all that. They'd heard about his provision for them in the wilderness. They'd heard about how they defeated the kings on the other side of the Jordan, how God had provided and protected and directed them. They'd heard all that. But you notice they don't mention Jericho and Ai, even though we know from earlier that they had heard about that, and that's what prompted them to come running to ask for peace. The reason they don't mention Jericho and Ai is that there wasn't the internet back then. There wasn't cable news networks. There wasn't satellite service. There's no way if they were on a long journey that they could have possibly have known about Jericho and Ai. And so this just shows the shrewdness of their whole deception. They act like they hadn't known about what had happened already in the invasion. Joshua and the leaders of Israel are skeptical at first, but then they expect their provisions. They look at their worn-out clothes and their old crumbly bread and their empty wineskins, and they believe them. And they make a covenant of peace with the Gibeonites, and they swear to it in the name of the Lord. It's important to notice that, that this covenant was sworn to by the leaders of Israel in the name of the Lord Yahweh, the one true God. It's at this point that the one writing the history adds an editorial comment. There's nothing, nothing editorial about anything in this historical account except for what it says in verse 14. It says that Israel's leaders did not ask counsel from the Lord. In other words, they relied upon their own observations. They relied upon their own wisdom. They relied upon the, the strength of their flesh to make a decision, and nobody asked the Lord for guidance, for revelation, for truth. It's a lesson for God's people in every age. I don't know what kind of big decisions you're facing in life right now, what crossroads are coming up. But the message of Scripture over and over, we've already seen it in Joshua. We see it again here. Yes, we must make plans. Yes, we must work hard and prepare and strategize and draw together all of our resources. But if we do all that and we do not seek the counsel of the Lord, we cannot expect the Lord's blessing. Always, in the, every step of the process, whatever you need to do between now and the crossroads, the why and the road where you need to make a decision, everything, all your diligence, your due diligence you have to do Make sure you saturate it with prayer, continuously. Because that's where you train your heart to depend upon the Lord. It's where you acknowledge your need of Him. And He is honored. He is glorified when we pray to Him to guide us. And He is dishonored when we refuse to pray. We're going through a lot of decision-making in the leadership of this church. We're making ministry decisions about how we're going to reach Penn State, State College, Center County, and beyond. And I challenge the leaders, but not just the leaders. I challenge everybody who's a part of this ministry to saturate all of this in prayer so that God might bless it. And I think this applies 
in a weird way because of our weakness and our faith. It applies in a weird but, but especially urgent way to our plans to expand the building and, and to have a building project of any kind because there's such a tendency to rely upon our own resources, to rely upon our own strategies and our own agendas and our own purposes. Saturate it with prayer that God might be honored and that we might be blessed by his guidance and his presence. We need the prayers of all of God's people. Three days later, Joshua and the leadership of Israel find out that they've been scammed by the Gibeonites and their delegation. And when they find out, they, they march the 20 miles to the Gibeonite cities. And when they get there, I imagine that the leaders, the delegation that had met with them is standing at the outskirts holding up their agreement and smiles on their face saying, you can't touch us. And it says that Joshua and the leaders were angry, as we should understand they would be. And it says, it goes on to say that the Israelite people murmured against their leaders for being so gullible. And the spiritual among them would have been angry that they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. Joshua goes on to rebuke the Gibeonites for their deceptions. It was wrong to lie. But because of the covenant that was formed with the Gibeonites, they were spared. Joshua was between a rock and a hard place. He had the command of God that all the Canaanites were to be destroyed, every one of them. That was the command they received. And so he's got that command hanging over his head. And he remembers what happened with Achan. I mean, Achan, all he did was spare from the city of Jericho a, a nice robe and some gold and silver, and he and all of his family and all his possessions were destroyed in judgment, in punishment. And so Joshua's thinking about this. So can I not wipe out the Gibeonite people and, and thereby, dis, by not doing that, would I be disobeying God's command? Or... Should I break this covenant made in the name of the Lord with the Gibeonites? What should I do? I can imagine. Honestly, I'm glad I wasn't in his sandals. I'm not sure what I would have done if I didn't know what scripture records for us. That's tough. He honored, he ended up deciding to honor this covenant, this contract between two parties, even though it was signed under false pretenses. If Joshua were to take this treaty to, to our court system today, it would, be, it would be labeled as fraud and be thrown out, and Israel wouldn't have been had to abide by it because it was done under false pretenses. But Joshua honors it, and the Gibeonites are spared. What does this teach us? It teaches us that the promises of God are very, very very important. That promises made in the name of God are not to be broken. I don't know how they resolved that dilemma that Joshua and the leaders were in, but it does tell me that we are not to take the promises made in the name of the Lord lightly. In Psalm 15, verses 1 and verse 4, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then it answers. It says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And then it goes on to say this. Who swears to his own hurt 
and does not change. Do you notice the language there? Who swears to his hurt. You make a vow. You make a promise before God. And you end up regretting it. You end up being hurt by the promise you've made. But one who honors God, one who reflects the nature of God, swears to his own hurt and does not change. We are people of the covenant of grace. We must take our promises that seriously. The vows before God that we make in marriage, we must treat them with the same seriousness. The vows that we take when we have our children baptized, the vows that we take when we become members of the church before God, the vows that some of you have taken to be ordained in leadership before God. We must take them with the same seriousness that Joshua and the leaders of Israel took to this vow that they made to the Gibeonites. You see, that's the gospel, isn't it? That he who swears to his own hurt does not change. That's the gospel. Because God swore to us that he would be a God to us and we would be his people. That he would send a Messiah, a Savior, one who would bear our punishment in our place. Who would be hurt worse than any human being has ever been hurt and bear the wrath of God for our sins. God swore a covenant of grace to us to his own hurt and praise God he doesn't change. He follows through on every part of his promise. And he will do so. We live by that. That's the only reason I can get up in the morning. It's the only reason I can face life. Is to know that God swears to his own hurt and he does not change and he never will. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. My whole life is staked on that's why promises are so important to God. Think about it. The Gibeonites were under God's wrath. They were condemned to destruction. But somehow they were led to seek peace and mercy with this God. Albeit by deceptive means. Sure their hearts weren't pure. Sure they should have just been honest. But... They resorted to deception, but still at the core of it was somehow they hoped that this God of justice that was about to destroy them would have mercy upon them. And I'll guarantee you that when you as a sinner came to God and became aware of his wrath and his condemnation for your sin, that when you professed your first faith in Christ and received your salvation, it was not a pure faith. Your motivations were not pure. And yet God received you. He had mercy upon you just like he did upon the Gibeonites. Praise God for his grace. You see, in some of these passages, we need to understand that when God declares judgment, when God declares that justice must be done, his wrath must be poured out, that there is always an implied offer of grace. The fact that he announces his judgment implies that there's an offer of grace. Otherwise, why does he even announce it? We saw it with Rahab, didn't we? Like the Gibeonites, Rahab was under the wrath and condemnation of God. And yet she did not 
side with the enemies of God. Instead, she cried out to the people of God and to God himself for mercy, and she was spared, and her family was spared. Maybe the Gibeonites knew about that, and that's why they hoped that somehow they might be able to cry out for mercy and be spared from the wrath of God. Remember the prophet Jonah? He was sent to Nineveh. And his message was clear and uncompromising. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It will be destroyed. No mention of grace. But what happened? The king of Nineveh called upon the people to repent of their sins and sackcloth and ashes and hope against hope that this God of justice would have mercy. And what did he do? He relented. And he spared the city of Nineveh. The Gibeonites sought peace with God instead of fighting with God. And look at the grace that they received based on their weak and corrupted faith. Look at the grace that they received. They were made a part of God's covenant people. Everybody outside of the covenant is under judgment and will ultimately be destroyed. They were brought within the boundaries of the covenant people of God. Not only that, they got to serve God directly as part of that covenant people. You notice the language. It says that they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. Don't miss that. Yes, they became cutters of wood and drawers of water. They were servants, but they got to work in the tabernacle. All the sacrifices, all those fires that burn up the sacrifices, all the cleansing rituals, required a lot of wood, a lot of water. And they got to work in the tabernacle. That meant every day they saw the priesthood do its work. Every day they saw the sacrifices being offered. Every day they heard the worship of God's people. Every day they heard the word of God. What grace God had upon this pagan, wicked, idolatrous people. Psalm 84 says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. They got to be servants in the house of God. Interesting note, just a couple of historical notes. Later, during the reign of David, there was a famine that lasted three years in Israel. David sought the Lord. says, why are we, why is this, what's this famine about? What are you trying to teach us, Lord? Do you know what the Lord said? I am disciplining you because your predecessor, King Saul, tried to wipe out the Gibeonites. And because they violated that promise, you're paying for it, that you might learn the importance of the promise of God. And then later, under Nehemiah, when the exiles from Babylon returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city and the temple, it says, listed among those people who came back to rebuild the walls were the Gibeonites. They've been incorporated into the people of God. The God of Joshua became the God of the Gibeonites. And they were saved. Everyone has this choice to make in life. Are you going to fight with God? Or are you going to trust in him and submit to him? Every breathing, living human being on the planet has that choice. Many years ago, there was a Broadway musical about black gospel music called your arms are too short to box with God. I thought, what a great title. I love the way it puts that because, I mean, you laugh. You say, yeah, of course our arms are too short to box with God, but everybody does it every day. 
We're so stupid. What's your status right now? Are you fighting with God? Or are you trusting in him and submitting to him? And just because you're in church doesn't mean that you're necessarily trusting in him and submitting to him. Remember, you don't have to be shouting blasphemies and taunts at God and shaking your fist at God in order to be his enemy. As Owen mentioned earlier, in Jesus' day, there were a lot of enemies of God that were leaders in the church of that day. If you say you believe in the God of scriptures, but you're not willing to trust in him and submit to him, you are an enemy of God. There is hope only in his mercy. And his mercy only comes through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Speaking of the enemies of God, the world is full of the tombs of people who have, shake, who have shaken their fist at God and cursed him. The world is full of tombs who now know the truth. One of those is a man named Voltaire. Voltaire was a French philosopher in the 18th century, and he was a well-known enemy of Christ. One day he wrote a letter to the king of Prussia, and this is what he said. Christianity is assuredly the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion that has ever infected this world. Your majesty will do the human race an eternal service by extirpating this infamous superstition. Voltaire, as you probably know, went on to predict that within 100 years, Christianity would be rendered extinct because of the enlightenment of man that happened in his era. Voltaire died. And now he knows better. But the world also knows better. Because you know what happened 50 years after he died? The French Bible Society bought his estate. And the very place where Voltaire lived and taught and held his earthly treasures, that very place was used as a printing press for the Geneva Bible that spread throughout all Europe. He who sits enthroned laughs at those who shake their fist at him. But blessed are those who trust in him. Just one word of assurance as we close. One word of assurance which speaks of those of us who have thrown ourselves upon the mercy of God like the Gibeonites and like Rahab. Here is the promise that is given to us according to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning first of all in verse 3, where it reminds us that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then over to verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Let's pray. Father, we cannot look down our noses in pride at the enemies around us of Christ and the church because we once were as they are. And it's only by your grace that our eyes were opened, our ears were opened, our hearts were changed, our minds were changed, and we came to see Jesus Christ as the anointed one, the Son of God who is enthroned over all the universe, the one who will come in judgment 
but who has offered in this day of salvation grace to those who will trust in him and submit to him. Father, we know that one day every knee and every Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we all here today be among those who do so willingly and joyfully when he returns. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.